Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 47, starting in verses 13 through 31. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate." So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, one of the very first lessons uh, that new parents come to learn and to understand, and it really hits you and impresses you very deeply, is just how utterly dependent newborn children are for absolutely everything. There is literally nothing that they can do uh, when they are first born. Now, to be fair to these little ones, they do start learning skills right away. They start learning how to breathe, and they start learning how to eat, but by those skills, they're literally starting at the very beginning, and it takes a very long time to learn the kind of skills that they would need to be able to survive on their own in any sense. Uh, 
Now, as a, as a parent, one of the interesting things that, that I experience is that I always forget this. As the parent of multiple children, we've had biological infants in our homes, we've had foster care infants in our homes, and it seems that every time this sort of hits me anew with a new freshness. And so every time we have a new newborn in our midst, I'm reminded really of three things. First of all, again, just how dependent they are, that I must care for them, or very literally, they will not survive. But second of all, as I think about that, it reminds me of just how dependent I am on the Lord. I'm not merely as dependent as these infants are on me, as I am on the Lord. I am far more dependent on the Lord. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, I wouldn't be able to be born or sustain another day without his provision. But the third thing that I'm reminded of as I think about this is that that's not a bad thing. We always want to have more and more independence. We want to get away from any source of dependence in life. But when we're talking about our dependence on God, it's actually very good news that we are dependent on the Lord. As the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism says, which we have quoted from time to time, it reminds us that our only hope, our only hope, both in this life, in the next, body and soul, is that we are not our own, but that we belong, all of us, in our entirety to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If he was not faithful, it would not be good news, but he is our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and so he is our only hope in this life and the next. Well, in our passage this morning, we're looking at the range of human dependence and human need. At the beginning, we are talking about provisions for the most basic of human necessities, of of food. And we're seeing the way that God provides food to the whole world through the wise administration of Joseph. But then at the very end, we're coming across something that looks beyond this life, as Jacob thinks about what must happen even after his death, as he dies in faith, just as he has lived in faith. Our big idea then spans all of this. In this passage, we are seeing that God preserves the living and raises the dead. God preserves the living and raises the dead. That's our big idea for this morning, and we'll look at this in three parts. Number one, faithful wisdom, faithful wisdom. Number two, fruitful blessings, fruitful blessings. And then number three, future-oriented faith, future-oriented faith. So let's start in this first section with faithful wisdom in verses 13 through 26. Now, when we come to verse 13, we are reminded that there is no food in the land. We are still in the midst of this never-ending, dragging-on, seven-year-long famine. This is the fourth time that we read that this famine is severe, but it's the second time that we read that this famine is very severe, so that both the land of Egypt as well as the land of Canaan languish by reason of the famine. Now, part of what this verse is doing, it's to justify Joseph's wisdom in bringing down his father and his brothers and all of their households and families down out of Canaan into the land of Egypt where he settles them in Goshen. In Canaan, they would still suffer from the effects of this famine, but in Goshen, close to Joseph, Joseph is going to be able to provide for them in their midst. But this verse also functions as something of a transition. Uh, We may not have realized it, but we've been really focusing exclusively on Joseph and Joseph's family, Jacob and all of his sons and their families, since chapter 42. Chapter 42 and 43, 44, 45, 46, and now the first part of 47 have all been about Joseph and his eventual reconciliation with his family. 
But now the subject returns to what we saw right before that, namely Joseph as this leader, this ruler in Egypt, who's in charge of the necessary wise administration to make sure that the whole earth is fed in the midst of this famine. And what we're seeing is that this isn't Joseph's wisdom that is on display. We are seeing Joseph implement the wisdom that he has received from God, as well as he implements God's goodness to feed the world. Now, as we read verses 13 through 26, we'll see that uh, there are multiple phases that Joseph undergoes as he interacts with these hungry people uh, to meet recurring needs. They eat their food, and then they need more food, and they eat their food again and need more food, and they keep bartering and trading to try to get enough food to continue their survival. It starts with their money. In verse 14, we read that Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. Now, this language for gathered up or gathering up, this is the same word that describes the gleaning of fields. For example, in Leviticus 19, verse 9. Um, in those days, uh, one of God's laws for his people uh, was that the rich who had these fields were not supposed to harvest absolutely everything, but they were to leave the corners so that the poor could go in and pick up the scraps to glean whatever was left over. And that's how the poor would feed themselves and their families. Well, if Joseph is gleaning the last of what's remaining from the money to give these people uh, some food to eat, um, Gordon Wenham sort of puts it into the language of our day to say, a paraphrase for this would be to say that they scraped together every last penny they had to buy food. But it doesn't last all that long. In verses 15 through 17, the money is gone and the people still need food. And so Joseph says, okay, this time, if you don't have money, Let's trade your livestock for food. And so they do that. They trade away their horses, and they trade away their um, cattle, their flocks, uh, their donkeys, all their livestock they trade away in exchange for food. But even that food, remember, livestock was their wealth. Uh, this was cashing in everything they had, their 401k and everything, to try to get a little bit more food. And notice in, at the end of verse 17 that we realize that that only lasted that year. And so in verse 18, when the year was ended, they came back. Why? Because they needed still more food. Well, in verses 18 through 22, they have no food. They have no money. They have no livestock. As they put it in verse 18, they only have their bodies and their land. And so they say to Joseph, here's what we want you to do. We want to sell ourselves to you as your servants, as your slaves. And we want you to buy up our land so that we can eat. And they also ask for seed to farm the land as they will serve as tenants on Pharaoh's new land. They'll be tenant farmers on that land. Now, as we read all of this, maybe you're asking a question. Is Joseph behaving ethically here? Or is Joseph exploiting this situation to amass a bunch of land and wealth and property for Pharaoh? Is this Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life just greedily grabbing up everything he possibly can? And the text of, of the Bible here is very clear that that's not at all what's happening. And we see this in about three ways, that Joseph is, is using wisdom and kindness and goodness, uh, God's own wisdom and kindness and goodness, to administer food in the midst of the situation. The first way that we see this is that there's a, an ongoing tension here about the contrast between life and death. We've seen these words come up a lot, living and dying, life and death, especially in, on the lips of Joseph's family. Jacob says it. Judah says it. Joseph says it in his interactions with his brothers uh, in Genesis 42, verse 2, in Genesis 42, verses 18 through 20. 
In Genesis 43, verse 8, and 45, verse 5, again and again, life and death. This whole thing is a struggle between life and death. And here we see that come up several times. In verse 15, they say, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? But then in verse 25, we have the contrast. In verse 25, they said, you have saved our lives. They didn't die, but Joseph saved their lives. But the real contrast is in verse 19. Once again, they say, why should we die? And then at the end, they say, give us seed that we may live and not die. What we are seeing here is, is Joseph is wisely weaving his way through very real issues of life and death, providing for the basic needs of his people. And the text is saying that at every turn, he's doing a really good job. As uh, John Salehammer, our commentator, writes on this passage. He says, we first saw this in Joseph's dealings with his family when they were talking about life and death. But now we see it with all the Egyptians, namely that Joseph's wisdom is seen as the source of living and not dying for the whole world. And that, of course, is not because Joseph is wise in himself. It's because as Joseph acknowledges his wisdom is a gift that comes from God. So that's the first way that we see that Joseph is behaving ethically here. He alone uh, weaves his way to preserve life and, and avoid death. The second way we see this is the way that Joseph provides for the Egyptians once the famine is over. In verses 23 through 26, after the famine is over, Joseph sets up what the new normal is going to look like. Remember, Pharaoh owns everything, all the money, all the livestock, and all the land in the area. But when Joseph sends these people to work back on the land that was formerly their land, he graciously lets them keep 80%, four-fifths of their grain that they raise, and only takes 20% for Pharaoh. Now, this is Pharaoh's land. He could have taken all of it. He could have taken 80% of it. He, couldn't take, he could have taken half of it. But he only takes 20% for Pharaoh and graciously gives 80% for the people to live on and for their families. We're told specifically to feed their little ones in verse 24. So that's the second way. Joseph provides generously for the Egyptians. But the third way we see that Joseph is behaving ethically and kindly here is the praise of the people himself. They don't see that Joseph has exploited the situation. In verse 25, they say, you have saved our lives. And they're so grateful that they continue by saying, may it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. If you're upset about the situation, you don't pledge to be servants of the one who has taken everything from you because you know, in this case, that Pharaoh was the one who provided all this food to the administration of Joseph. Now, in all of this, don't miss the main point. We see lots of wheeling and dealing and bartering and negotiation in this ancient world story. But don't miss the main point. What this is underscoring, and we see this time and time again, especially in Genesis, God cares about feeding his people. God cares about feeding his people. Furthermore, it is part of the wisdom of God to coordinate all of the logistics necessary for feeding his people. God doesn't see food as a second-rate kind of a thing. From the very beginning, God has been concerned to feed his people. You know, it's interesting. I think about my own jobs, and I haven't often worked directly with food. But I think about my first job was in detasseling. Some of you know what that is. Some of you don't. It's where you go in the cornfields and you pull off the tassels. It has something to do with um, the cross-pollinization of the corn. And I don't understand it, but I was a kid who was able to do it and make money from it, so I did it. But I vividly remember my orientation on the very first day uh, that they plugged in that tape back in the day. And I remember hearing this old recording of someone saying, you are helping to feed the world. I was just there to earn a little extra money, but I was helping to feed the world, I was told. 
And then I think about my second job, working in a pizza store, a Papa Murphy's Pizza. On any given night, I prepared maybe 50 pizzas, personally. But I think about all of the the coordination to get all the vendors to bring all of the various different vegetables and meats and to get all of those not only sort of prepared but to that store. And I think about the fact that I worked evenings and there were people there who were already early there in the day chopping and preparing all the vegetables and the dough. And I think about how many people during that time did our little restaurant feed. And then to think about all the other people throughout all the world who helped to feed everyone else. It's a huge logistical challenge to feed the world. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, calls attention to the fact that in the Lutheran tradition, Lutherans talk about our work to meet these basic needs of people as uh, functioning as the fingers of God, the fingers of God. He is pointed, the point is that God could snap his fingers. Now, God doesn't have a body, so he doesn't have fingers to snap. But figuratively speaking, God could snap his fingers and, and, and be, uh, banquets would appear before us. But in God's wisdom, he chooses to work through us to feed the world. Just as a baby is utterly dependent on caregivers, so we are utterly dependent upon God for our physical needs. This is why we prayed just a little bit ago, give us this day our daily bread. Because even if we realize it or not, we are dependent upon God for that daily bread, even though we don't often think about it. Well, even to the end of his life, Joseph acts faithfully according to the great wisdom that God has blessed him with. And because of this faithful wisdom, God preserves the lives of the Egyptians during this famine. But now the narrative returns its focus on Israel specifically. We sort of tied up the loose ends of how is the world going to get through this famine? And now we return to Israel in verse 27 where we see that God is not only preserving lives, but he is flourishing his people. And what we see in verse 27 is not not just a logistics coordination to meet physical needs. We are also seeing God's covenant keeping. His covenant keeping not to meet merely physical needs, but spiritual needs. And so in verse 27, we see our our second point, uh, fruitful blessings. We read this, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Goshen, Israel, gained many possessions. That is, they, they, they grew, especially in livestock. They were shepherds, and so wealth for them meant livestock. And we also read that they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, as we step back from the Joseph story for just a moment, understand this is a really important verse. Because in the book of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis is about God's people being fruitful and multiplying. That was what uh, God told the very first people that he created, Adam and Eve. He commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. uh, But they forfeited the full sense of what that would mean by their sin. And so God expelled them from the Garden of Eden because of sin. But nevertheless, God still wanted his people to be fruitful and multiply. And this command comes up again and again. In Genesis 8, verse 17, chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, chapter 17, verse 20, chapter 28, verse 3, and chapter 35, verse 11. God either commands his people to be fruitful and multiply or promises that he will make his people fruitful and that he will multiply them. And one commentator, Victor Hamilton, points out that in Genesis, those words usually describe a goal, something that has not yet happened. But here, the only time we find this, at the very end of Genesis, we see this presented as something that has already been accomplished. 
God's people have been fruitful. They have multiplied greatly. This is an accomplishment that God accomplishes for his people. Now, God is going to continue to do this. Indeed, when we turn the page to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, uh, right away we hear again that God caused his people to be more fruitful and to multiply to an even greater degree. But here we are seeing a partial fulfillment of God's original mandate and his original promises for creation of being fruitful, multiplying. Why is this important? Well, it's partially important because of population growth. God wants his image bearers to fill the earth, especially this nation of Israel, but it's more than that. Let me illustrate to you uh, what's going on here like this. Um, I'm not a handy person. If you've ever had me try to repair anything, um, you would know that I can fix nothing, much to my wife's chagrin, Uh, which means that my dad at several points has come over to help me with various projects around the house. And about a year ago, my parents moved to this area, so I'm about 20 minutes away from him. So now I go and help him with some of the projects as he's moving into his new home. Again, I'm still not handy. I don't enjoy the work for what it is. But I go over because I enjoy working with my dad. The point is not that I find personal fulfillment in handy housework. I don't in the very least. Nothing causes me more stress in this world. But I enjoy the time that I get working with my dad. The the work is important. I mean, these aren't just tasks we make up. But the real benefit of this is the relationship. The relationship is what's really important. Well, if you think about these two categories of what God is doing here, the work that he is accomplishing in the world and the relationship that he is forging with his people, that helps us to understand what's happening here. In part, we see that in Joseph's wisdom, God gives Joseph wisdom so that Joseph can accomplish the work of feeding the world. But what God is doing is showing the world a bit, a glimpse, a glimmer of his general goodness to the world. And when we come to Israel, part of what God is doing is fruitfully multiplying this people to increase their population as an outcome, as a work. But what God is really doing is he is accomplishing his special covenantal goodness toward his people. And it will be through this special goodness of making his people fruitful and multiplying them into a great nation that God will accomplish his eternal purposes of salvation in and through them as God raises up his own son from those who are descended from this nation. This passage then portrays God as gracious and faithful, gracious to preserve the nation of Egypt through a devastating famine, and faithful to make his own people fruitful and to multiply in Goshen. But when we come to the final four verses, the the third section, we shift our attention beyond God's gracious faithfulness in this life to look instead to his gracious faithfulness beyond our lifetimes. And so the third section, future-oriented faith, we see in verses 28 through 31. Now in verse 28... We are told that Jacob's lifetime stretches longer than he expects it. Jacob has sort of been on death's door for quite a while. Now, over 20 years earlier, uh, when he thought Joseph had died, he already was, felt like he was down in the grave. That He had been brought down in the grave because of his mourning. And he was regularly talking about how he's ready to die. And then finally, 22 years after that, when he is reunited with Joseph, he says, Now let me die, since I have seen your face. Back in Genesis 46, verse 30. But in the Lord's kindness, the Lord gives him 17 more years to spend with his son from whom he has been separated for so long. And yet, after those 17 years, when Jacob is 147, 
the time does come for Jacob to die. And when that time approaches, Jacob summons his son Joseph. And Jacob asks Joseph to make him one promise, to swear to bury him back in the land of Canaan. Now, if you remember some of what we studied earlier or you're familiar with your Bibles, you you may recall that this sounds a lot like what happened in Genesis chapter 24. At the end of the life of Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, Abraham came to the end of his life and he also summoned to himself at the end of his life, not his son, but one of his servants. And just as Jacob asked Joseph to put his hand under his thigh to swear him an oath, so Abraham asked the same thing of his servant, to swear him an oath by putting his hand under his thigh. But Abraham was already in the land of Canaan. Of course, that's where he was going to be buried. And so what he asked his servant to do was a little bit different and yet very related to what Jacob asked Joseph to do. Abraham asked his servant to make sure that, that his son Isaac would not marry one of the women from the land. But instead, Abraham asked his servant to go back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham was originally from, to find a wife to give to Isaac his son. Now, why was that? Well, it was because Abraham believed the promises. God had promised that God was going to dispossess one group of people from the land, the Canaanites, the people of the land, and to instead settle Abraham and his offspring in the land of Canaan forever. And so Abraham believed those promises and so understood that if his son intermarried with a woman from the land, then there would be no way to dispossess one and to plant him and his family in the land. And then instead, God would have to abandon his promises because his people would have broken the covenant and made it impossible. And so Abraham insists that it is necessary, absolutely necessary, that Isaac marry someone else. So that God can continue with the promises that he has made to Abraham and his offspring forever. Well, Jacob is also acting in faith here. Jacob understands that God had promised to give him the land of Canaan. Now, Jacob doesn't possess the land of Canaan, neither did Abraham. He only possesses one burial plot, which Abraham had bought for his wife, Sarah, and all of his Abraham and and, and Sarah and Isaac. And now Jacob will be buried in that burial plot. But Jacob wants to be back in the land of Canaan when he dies. Why? Because he believes that God will keep his promises. That 400 years after this story takes place, God is going to bring the nation of Israel out of the land of of Egypt and to bring them back into the land of Canaan. And Jacob wants his bones to be waiting there when his offspring comes back to take possession of the land. Jacob doesn't gain what he wants, what he believes God has promised to him in this life. But he has a faith that looks toward the future, even beyond his death, to believe that God, even after he dies, will be faithful to fulfill his promises. Well, in the United States of America, in 2021, it is perhaps easy to lose sight of how dependent we are on God for food. Food is everywhere. I dare say probably most of us have gone through our lives without ever having experienced anything like a food shortage. And praise the Lord for his kindness in that. But when we think about the fact that all of us must die, every last one of us must die, that's when we really clearly can see the true state of our vulnerability. No matter how set up you think you may be in this life, no matter how independent you may think you are in this life, the day is going to come when your life will be over. And then you will either be entrusted into the hands of God or you will withhold yourself from God by faithlessness. When we die, ready or not, 
We entrust our bodies and our souls to God for all of eternity. None of us knows when that day is coming. And so the question we all have to wrestle with as we look at this future-looking faith in the person of Jacob here, we have to ask, are you ready, like Jacob was, to entrust your death to God? Are you ready to live in future-oriented faith that looks to God beyond the grave? Jacob, as an act of faith, made Joseph swear an oath to bury him in Canaan. We, too, have an oath, but our oath is even better. It's not the oath sworn by a mere man. It's an oath sworn by God himself. An oath sworn that God has so loved us that he has provided his own son, Jesus Christ. And the oath that God swore was sealed in the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. And it was ratified and confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. And so this morning as we think about how to apply this rangy text of thinking about providing for our physical needs in this life and for our life beyond the grave... Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our application. Hear the gospel of Jesus for helpless, vulnerable, dying sinners. It's this. Trust in Christ as your only comfort in this life and the next. Trust in Christ as your only comfort in this life and the next. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned Heidelberg Catechism question number one. If you're using a sermon worksheet, I have conveniently printed that on there so you can look at this as I'm reading through this. But this catechism question is such a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches about where we should find our comfort and our hope. The question asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now stop there. In this world, we will continue to face trials and troubles and pain and ultimately All of us must endure death. The world faced a famine during the days of Joseph, and we have our own troubles still today, even if they are different. So what comfort then can we have in the midst of chaos and the carnage of this world? What comfort can we have when death must come for us all? The only comfort possible is the one who holds life and death in his hands. Our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who promises that he will be the good shepherd. The one who promises to be a good king. The one who died and behold who is alive forevermore. He is the one who preserves all the living by his faithful wisdom and gracious care. And he is the one who shepherds us through the famines of our lives so that we can trust him to meet every need we have in this life and the next. But how? How can we trust Jesus? What has he done to accomplish that trust for us? Well, this is the next part of the answer to the catechism question. He, Jesus Christ, has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Our good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep Our good shepherd spilled his own precious blood in order to snatch us away from the tyranny of the devil. Our good shepherd is the one who gives us fruitful blessings in this life and the next. He's the one who makes us to lie down by green pastures and who leads us beside still waters, the one who restores our souls. Like Israel, God makes us flourish even when the famine rages on all sides of us. During this life, we do not need to fear anything. For not even a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven. 
And furthermore, Christ promises that he is indeed working all things. His control hasn't slipped in the least. He is working all things together for our good, for our salvation. But the blessings of Christ, we are told, stretch beyond this life. He is to comfort us beyond death in this way. And the catechism question ends this way. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life. We have the promise of eternal life. And Christ makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Jacob insisted that he be buried in Canaan because he believed that God would be his God even after he died. He had a future-oriented faith. He did not have the clarity of the full revelation that we have to understand how that would work that we have through the New Testament, but he knew that something like the resurrection would come, must come, because, he, because God was the God of Jacob, and God would be faithful to fulfill his promises even if that fulfillment did not come until after Jacob's death. But we too can go to our deaths in faith, in faith in the promises of eternal life, and especially the promise that when Jesus Christ returns, he will raise the dead. Brothers and sisters, we are entirely dependent. Even more vulnerable than little babies, every atom in our bodies only holds together because God speaks it by the word of his power through Jesus Christ to uphold every bit of it. We have nothing apart from him and we have everything in him. Are you looking to Christ in faith? Are you ready that if you died today, you would be ready to entrust your body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, as you awaited the eternal life that he promises you? Brothers and sisters, today is the day when our eyes are drawn back to the heavenly places where Christ is seated. And so look to him. Seek him. In the midst of the busyness of this world and the trials and tribulations of this world, look to Christ, the one who preserves all the living and the one who raises the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us. We pray that you would build us up in your kindness, and we pray that you would show us your love through your word, and now in a moment through your sacrament, that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Hallelujah, amen. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.